This is The Dog and Bone. Welcome to The Dog and Bone, a series of podcasts brought to you by Propeller Group, the specialist agency that builds profile and helps grow business for companies in media, marketing, retail and technology. I'm Martin Lote, founder of Propeller and curator of The Dog and Bone. In each episode, we invite business leaders with something to say into our kennel for a chat, and we ask them to dig up something a bit tasty for us to chew on. In this episode of The Dog and Bone, I'm joined by Ali Owen, founder of the Brixton Finishing School and one of its recent students, Dorcas Matombi. And we're going to talk about inclusion in the advertising industry and what more can be done to ensure that people from all backgrounds have a fair chance of getting in and getting on in the business. And I should mention that Propeller is a sponsor of the school. Now, after a career in digital media at places such as The Guardian, Yahoo and Mail Online, In 2018, Ali Owen decided that the industry she worked in was not doing enough to embrace emerging talent from all sections of society. She set up her own agency, Hoxton United, and the Brixton Finishing School to help train young people for jobs in advertising because, as she puts it, while talent is distributed equally, opportunities are not. Now in its second year, the Brixton Finishing School is a 10-week course over the summer. 30 young people from diverse backgrounds pass through it this summer. One of them is Dorcas Matombi, who's with us today. Dorcas is in her final year of a politics degree at the University of Westminster, and she's hoping that her experience on the course will help her break into advertising in a strategy role. Welcome to you both. Thank you, Martin. Thank you. Ali, can we start with you? What gave you the idea for starting Brixton Finishing School? If I can say Katie Hopkins, which is probably really? quite a strong start. It's a surprise. But I'm going to, yeah. I was working at the Mail Online and... Um, Katie Hopkins was employed as a columnist there. And I just had a moment of clarity that I was actually running uh, the FMCG line, the Unilever account, which was quite a big revenue line. And so essentially I was I was funding what Katie was writing, right. which kind of made me complicit in the constructs she was supporting, uh, which aren't exactly ones I agree with. So to cut a long story short, I left the mail online and decided to set about changing the kind of makeup of our industry and kind of learning more about the challenges that young people face when they come in, in the hope that if we all are a bit more inclusive, our editorial, creative and kind of account teams would be much more representative of the people that live in this country rather than just small segments of society. Right. And just tell us a little bit about the, the, the course and who's involved and how it works and then we can discuss what it, what it all means. So it's uh, a 10-week free course and we've got a whole cast of sponsors and supporters. It's full-time. And we do a massive outreach campaign every year to try and find 30 young, talented people who are 18 and 20, 25 Londoners. And those have to be from BAME, working class, neurodiverse backgrounds or female, or obviously a wonderful intersection of all the above. And the reason we chose those particular groups is because those are the groups that are most underrepresented within our industry. Uh, for example, London's 40% BAME, but our industry is only about 15%, and that tends to be at the junior levels. Uh, The course itself is formed by a kind of uh, industry-led education board. So every year we look at a different curriculum to make sure that the young people we've got, we're really building them to win. So it's a mixture of creativity, digital marketing skills, and also a big kind of professional skills element. So you can imagine if you're uh, your first day in an office, especially a media office, where it seems really relaxed, but clearly it isn't because there's loads of nefarious rules that nobody tells you. It's very easy to trip up. Hidden codes. There's lots of hidden codes. And also just the simple things like don't wear your ear 
what they called earbuds when you're in a meeting. You may not be playing music through them, but it's, you know, people don't know you're listening. So there's lots of things that younger people may do um, that they don't realise are actually giving the wrong signals. So Dorcas, how did you first get involved in going to the Brixton Finishing School? Um, actually, it was through uh, one of my mentors from a previous um, leadership programme who was connected with Ali and I asked about um, opportunities and getting more experience in, in marketing um, and she referred me to Ali's Brixton Finishing School, um, which was around digital marketing and advertising. I'd never actually been aware of the advertising mm -hmm. industry or what the opportunities may be in there. So I was just, um, I was open to giving it a try and it turned out to be something that I was very, very interested in. How did the course play out for you? What did you, what did you do? What did you experience? So the course for me, it was a it was a whirlwind. Um, I was also working as Ali's student liaison. Um, so I was working, which was also giving me skills in how to obviously manage um, people, manage the group, especially when Ali was in meetings. Um, and then on the course, the insights that we got, we got opportunities to go into agencies that we would have never otherwise had the opportunities to go into or um and we got to do workshops and masterclasses to, to actually give us like real experiences. We were doing live, some live briefs, um, obviously some just regular made up briefs just to test our own kind of knowledge and skills and understanding of what our skills and strengths were. Um, so, yeah, so it just gave, it gave us a, a whole world of opportunities that you just generally don't necessarily get through academia yeah. um, per se, because we have people from uni, from not um, uni. We should mention one or two of the agencies you went in. Can you, can you tell us some of the names of the, the agencies that support um, the course? So we started off with DNAD. We've been into Adam and Eve. Google supported us a lot. RGA came and they did five masterclasses with yeah. us. They wow. supported us. Like We've got quite a few personal relationships with a lot of them now um connecting with them on linkedin um we went pretty green connect uh, kinetic clear channel yeah mel metro vccp i'm going to forget some now i'm, I'm going to feel really really guilty but there's a massive <laughs> there long were, list a <laughs> yeah. of flavor. so yeah. where does it leave you now in terms of your career aspirations and what's happening next for you um so obviously we did connect with quite a few people linkedin was a, a key factor of that um and then some people have been invited afterwards to um going to um their offices and spend the day shadowing and getting a bit more experience and um for example one of the hr um recruiters in uh where, where? Mediacom in Mediacom is still supporting me with my CV, helping me kind of tailor my CV to the industry. Um, so yeah, they're still they're still supporting us past graduation. Um, and the idea is, I'm still finishing final year. So right. when I finish final year in about May, they're kind of preparing me to potentially go into one of their roles because they do obviously want the talent that Ali has yeah. rounded up. And the others that graduated and had also graduated from college or university or were just um, in normal jobs, they've been placed at roles at sponsors because that's one of the key differences of the course is I wanted it to be a practical, measurable change. So actually all our sponsors ring fence roles for the graduates. So it's very much a kind of it takes a village to build a child type approach. We're all kind of shaping these wonderful young people so that they're the best. Um, so we've placed about 12 now out of the 30. Some have returned to uni, three ones scholarships to the School of Communication Arts, the world's most awarded ad school. One won a fellowship to the BBC, so I've got five left, I think. It's a place if anybody's got any jobs. Let me know. <laughs> yeah, so there's a good track record in terms yeah. of it actually delivering. So so why is it also important at this stage to be doing this within the advertising and media industry, do you think, Ali? Well, the IPA statistics, which I'm sure everybody's aware of, said we're at the best place ever for kind of diversity. But if that's the best place, we've got a massive job to do. Yeah. Um, so in terms of actually looking at the work we produce and the makeup of companies, when you actually look at 
creative teams or the senior management teams. They're really not diverse at all. There's a particular dominant type, which in no way, being disrespectful, tends to be from a white male um, background um, of a certain class as well. So actually, when you think about all the incredible flavours of person you could potentially have, which are actually all consumers, you know, at the end of the day, our job is to communicate to everybody and sell everything to everybody. But we seem to be just using a particular type of person as a transmitter to come up with ideas for that. So that leads us open to presenting, kind of creating tone deaf work or even work that's quite offensive. Give, give us some examples that have caught your eye then that have uh, caused you to take these... Well, I think for me, my personal favourites, which I hope we will discuss, Mm -hmm. and um, obviously Dorcas has some really key views here as well, um, is Guinness has done some work, then Heineken have done some good and bad work, Pepsi, Kendall Jenner, um, which was a kind of pastiche of the Black Lives Matter movement. And also just from an ageism point of view as well, my my least favourite ageism um, kind of advert was ever the planter shampoo advert, where um, a woman who is... Um, clearly the wrong side of 30, gets out of a shower and sort of says, shh, it's really great for women over 40. As if women over 40 should actually never be heard in the room. Maybe we should be silent or just die at 39 because we're no longer worthwhile as consumers. But all of that stuff just, it's, you know, it's just clumsy. And yeah. I think we could do a lot better. Dorcas, what examples would you call out? Um, well, for me, it's stuff like the, the H&M um advert but they it wasn't an advert it was one of their their pictures on their website with the the little black boy um coolest monkey in the jungle oh right mm. yes, that, one. that one um stuff like the tone deaf stuff like that the um heineken the heineken one one of their bad ones was the um, the lighter is better advert i have heard of it yeah but you also mentioned guinness earlier on i don't yeah. know everyone would be familiar with that one do you want to tell us a bit more about that um yeah so it was a campaign that they did with lagos yeah, um, they did, yeah they did in Lagos in Nigeria, and it was essentially uh, this group that went there to redefine blackness to them, um, which was which sounds harmless until you obviously realise that the group that went are a group of white men, um, so it is it just from the get go it already comes across incredibly patronising, condescending, yeah. and just what were they thinking, um, and you have to question how many layers it went through in terms yeah. of approval to reach the public and not one person thought that it would it was completely tone deaf um for you someone of a different race to tell someone of yeah. a, of another race how to be that race um so yeah it was crazy and even the the advert um that's on youtube it was very it just played on way too many stereotypes and kind of borderline racist tropes of what you'd think africans are and it clearly comes from a very eurocentric point of view so yeah. they even had these kind of white tribal paintings on their faces yeah that's not coming from a perspective of someone who knows africa or knows the culture or anything like that right which of course you do yeah you, it would have taken just one person of that background yeah or just and they reassign it. you use the expression tone deaf there what does mm-hmm. that mean to you because it's, it's almost is it a bit of a, a get out clause you're almost being mm-hmm. too nice to people i mean that doesn't sound what you described doesn't sound tone deaf. It just sounds like sort of brazenly stupid and badly planned. <laughs> um, the reason I say that is because I I try to be very careful about throwing um, the word racism around because I, I feel like racism a lot of the time either has a very malicious intent or the, the fallout would probably be a bit more systematic, a bit more structural. Whereas this one, I think it's people miss the point of how something will come across um, and that's what I call it t- tone deaf. So even right. the, the H&M advert 
I call it tone deaf because I don't think anyone went out of their way to be racist or imply something about black people. They just missed the link between describing someone as a monkey and then using a black person for that right. advert. So that's why I use the term tone Yeah, deaf. I see that. It's a good expression. So, Ali, is that a particular problem that there's a kind of subconscious bias going along or would you actually say that there are... Um, structures in our industry that are almost trying to slam the door on some people. I definitely feel there's um, the structures that we have don't welcome certain groups. There's a certain way of entering the industry, and that's through people you know. But to know somebody, you have to be in the industry. And we all know the kind of challenges around referral programs, where if you just refer people, you tend to refer from the 10 people closest to you. You'll go out and say sons, daughters, whatever. The trouble is the 10 people closest to you are the ones most like you. So if you are already a member of a particular group um, and your office is dominated by that group, you're only going to probably know that, no, not saying, not presuming generalising, but it's more likely than not you're going to refer from that group. And what you're doing is having ever-decreasing returns of difference. Then there's obviously a lot more things when it comes to how we decide what talent looks like in the industry as well. Um, I don't know whether anybody saw um, How to Break into the Elite with Amal Ranjan. There was a really interesting LSE study which showed that you could be both, you could go to a Russell Group University but it didn't matter whether you got a tutu or first if you were going to get into the city or media. It was what class you were. And that is what we call cultural fit, which some people bandy about, which is open to um, uh, misinterpretation, certainly in a way that doesn't favour particular groups of people because you end up automatically, I think, biasing towards more like yourself. Yeah, I was very personally struck on this a couple of years ago when I heard a, a talk given by the then chief exec of... Um, Channel 4, David Abraham, and he was talking about that recruitment mm. thing and the tendency literally for people to ring yeah. their mates in recruitment and get the same sort of people. And they'd actually specified you must go out of your way to find a recruitment source from a source that you're currently not yeah. using, either geographically or um, demographically, so that we start to see names and people in front of us in interviews that are not just a mate of a mate from, from university. So I think it's a very well-made point. But even if you do find... Um sources well but the thing is people from different groups are trying to get in but there's already systemic unbalance as well for example when people send their cvs in there's um, been lots of studies about people's names um so the most recent one was by um nuffield and it was about they sent out about three thousand cvs and they basically sent out english sounding names then nigerian muslim or etc names and basically they were able to prove that if you had a nigerian sounding surname you had to send 80 percent more cvs off to get an interview pakistani surname was 70 percent more and those figures hadn't changed since studies in the 1970s and that 50 years is, is shocking um, and there's also another study called Mohammed versus Adam, which shows the same thing. Right. So even if you are trying to get in and you're presenting yourself and saying, consider me, consider me, if you're not fitting that certain set of what they feel comfortable with, it's a challenge. But do you think the advertising or media industry has a, has a particular issue or are your comments sort of general? You mentioned the city there and you know other industries. Have we got a I've, particular problem on our hands? I must admit, I'm not an expert on the, uh, the stats of the city apart from the fact that there's not enough women in the FTSE 100 and I'm presuming it's just as bad but um, the only thing I really I presume this is probably across a lot of industries because it seems to be a kind of universal problem because I, when we do massive amounts of outreach for the school um, and it is really complex to try and find um, communities and groups and build relationships with them if they're not immediately to hand 
And that's one of the big challenges we have. And I would probably think most people have a day job that takes up quite a lot of time. So I would challenge most people to say they're doing the outreach they really need to do to actually get different sources of talent in. Yeah. I suppose with advertising, as you mentioned, um, the need to get representative samples sort of mm. making the campaigns, because obviously advertising yeah. is doing work that then communicates with the whole of society, to then only have a, a narrow shocking. section of society. Yeah. yeah. What's your experience of that, Dorcas, in terms of the agencies you, you, you went into? Did you see them aspiring to put representative um, teams onto campaigns or are they not able to do that because of the, the narrow recruitment base at the moment? I think, the um, like Ali explained, the, the, the methods of recruitment definitely play a part. Um, the, when we went to some of the agencies, we were um, amongst the group, we were doing what we called um, a diversity index. <laughs> so we were literally counting how many people of colour, for example, um, that they were in a particular agency when we would do like a walk around um, of a tour. Um, and a lot of places just weren't doing amazingly well. And one of the things that we spoke about a bit later on um, when uh, we had one of our masterclasses is that it almost felt uncomfortable because we were such a diverse group of literally like a lot of, for example, brown people, headscarves, turbans and stuff, walking into a very... Yeah. Do you know what I mean? A very... Um, Atypical media. Yes. Uh, like, especially, for example, very white spaces. So, and they, they were kind of not intentionally malicious stares, but it's, you know, it's other and you definitely feel out of place because you just don't look like the rest of the work workforce. So there, there is that some obviously speak very passionately about what they are trying to do, but obviously, and they're receptive to a challenge, um, which is more important than anything because some people talk about the d word fling it around diversity it's a big buzzword but who's doing the work and who's willing to take the criticisms from us for example the people that are trying to break in is another big factor because some people just it's it's a it's a hard pill to swallow to say that you guys aren't doing enough having visited a few companies like you well you like you both have but obviously on the course mm -hmm. have you got any tips because you know i'm i'm a, a director of, of of propeller the sponsor of this podcast and mm -hmm. we're we're an we're an employer obviously mm -hmm. you know have you got any tips for how we could be more inclusive um i've noticed particularly for example around you know in the idea of the sort of workforce some people like to go for a, for a drink but some people don't drink so they mm -hmm. might feel not included mm -hmm. some people might not eat meat and there might be sort of you know people going out for a burger on a friday and they mm -hmm. might not feel in included so yeah. i'm just wondering if there's any sort of uh, obvious ways forward that uh, agencies could just sort of do more to be more inclusive with their workforce i mean as um me personally as an individual and based on um, previous work experiences, one thing that I've genuinely always loved is when people are willing to um, dive into my culture, especially mm. if it's something that is completely out of the ordinary for them. Um, and from a previous workplace, for example, we had a um, I had a manager who was Lithuanian and me and her just come from different worlds entirely. So there was a day she, she just didn't know what plantain was. And I was like, well, how do you not know what plantain is? So we planned a day where our reception team, we went to a Caribbean restaurant and she tried out Caribbean food. It turns out she loves it. She's a big fan of plantain now. And then we then oh, and then she brings me in Lithuanian food and we exchange our culture because of that openness to learn about each other and then you just feel more welcome you stay there for a long time you're you're committed to that workforce and to that company because of that willingness to embrace you and all your layers of identity you're listening to the dog and bone podcast from propeller group if you're enjoying it please share the link with your network subscribe on itunes or your normal podcast provider and if you're feeling really inspired please write a review to help us zoom up the charts 
Now, back to the conversation. Ali, I want to ask you, what about what I sort of call diversity and diversity? Because in, uh, you, you know, you mentioned um, people from BAME background, neurodiversity, yeah. working class, females. In the advertising and media industry, we certainly do have some brilliant senior female leaders and, and role models in, in agencies and media and so on. So is it arguable that they've made a lot of progress, but things like the BAME community, neurodiversity, working class, they're groups that are not yet so I think progressed? All, I think we're all on the same journey, but none of us have reached the destination, which would be just to be judged on ourselves rather than one of the layers of identity we have. So, you know, until really until the C-suite's 50-50 male-female, because that's actually, talent is spread equally, then that's probably not the gender conversation over until men can actually take full parental leave. I certainly think on both BAME, class and neurodiversity, there's much further to go. But that's all about working together as well. And I think what's really important to me is I don't think you should just... um, It is just, I don't... I'm about all trying to advance all of those. I'm not, I've not picked a particular intersection because most of the people I work with are mixtures of those intersections. Right. You know, we have a wonderful young lady called Shalindor who has just won a placement at Mel Metro and she's a mixture of care leaver, autistic and very proudly autistic, BAME and LGBT. Um, and she should be just able to be the wonderful Shalindor she is. And that's because that's her magic secret source. That's what she brings to creative campaigns. Um, so I don't think you can really split it down. But I know in the current situation, without, say, Brixton or people being able to be change makers at places like Mail Metro, she probably wouldn't have got in, even though she's extremely talented. Yeah, you mentioned the sort of um, sending in CVs and the need if you've got a, a, a normal sort of English sounding name to send in many more. Uh, you know, is it a, it, how much is it to do with sending in CVs or how much is it to do with the sort of the culture, perhaps, of, um, I don't know, or the confidence to take a risk? I mean, we're an employer, so yeah. we get CVs. But if somebody sends a message or a video or something saying, I've looked at your company, what about this great idea? You know, that's yeah. that's we don't know them, so it's not on the old boy network, but it's not a CV. It's yeah. a sort of confident pitch of themselves. Is there some area there where... The, the sort of people you're helping could could yeah. could work out how to do more I mean, of that. I think yeah, all of us have to stand out from creativity. And yeah, if you don't have an all boy network, you're going to have to work a lot lot harder. But the thing is, why should that be? You know what I mean? You should actually it should be about the person who's the best. It should be about the person that was working really hard. We're a creative industry. Why should somebody just because they know somebody walk in? Whereas the rest of us have to sell ourselves to death to get a chance. Because actually, really, the person that's selling themselves to death has got the skills you need. And the other person has just been, you know, walked through a door that somebody else opened. I don't necessarily view that as good business, potentially, when you're selecting. What's your opinion on the the need and desirability of underrepresented groups to have their own sort of specialist yeah places and voices or should the the journey be about them just being included in everything in the industry i mean do we need a sort of working class advertising club you know or... well i think i may set one up um, for example we are stripes which is run by a karma davis is a brilliant bame group then you've got bame 2020 there's lots of groups because at the end of the day each of these intersections will have some particular needs and the reality is it would be lovely if we we're all included but we're not and that's actually something that we as the people who are excluded potentially can't control because we're not the ones who are deciding whether to include us or not. It's the people who are actually running the industry that probably need to 
maybe invite us to their club. And that would be lovely. I'd I'd say it's it's, it's definitely a, a, a mixture of the two suggestions that you gave because when you're part of a minority group of any type, or you're sitting at an intersection of many different types of minority groups, you do kind of want and sometimes need those safe spaces because those are the only places where you can bounce similar experiences off of people and um, some things you just can't talk about when you're literally the only person that experiences that in the room yeah. so you do need those spaces but those spaces are only necessary while there's still that imbalance mm-hmm. when that imbalance gets rectified and there is a diverse group yeah. of people and you don't feel, have to feel like you're the minority when you walk into a workplace or um, a professional setting the need for safe spaces will decrease I mean you can still have a community but the need for it will just phase it fade itself yeah. out mm. i think that's well put i mean i i'm very much sort of seen that point in the book joy of work by bruce daisley from twitter about psychological safety yeah and i think you're saying is by having creating some sort of safe space mm. so that confidence and comfort and yeah. experience yeah. comes that can then be applied in a more kind of equal playing field it's a good way forward and it, it can it can also be used as a way to even help you advance in certain places that you're stuck. So, for example, on the course, um, another amazing thing Ali did was um, we had a lady called Maria who was um, assigning mentors for all of us, um, mentors within the industry. So a key thing that she focused on was mentors from similar demographics because one thing I noticed, um, my mentor wasn't there, but then she had a couple of um, the black girls that were there, I think about four of them, assigned to her. And as soon as they got with her in a meeting, they started talking about all the issues that they had that were specific to a black female experience right, that they literally right. had been holding in the whole time. Yeah, and those were the things that she could, from as an individual in the industry, give them advice on how to manage that from a black female perspective. That was a conversation that needed to be had between those those people because they would be the only ones to understand it. She was the only one that could help in that specific right. topic. So that's another reason why you need those those spaces because you would feel very awkward otherwise bringing it up anywhere else. Yeah. So from from your experience, Ali, we you know we've called out a few poor examples. Who, who's who's doing well? Who would you give a pat on the back in the industry, both as individuals Ooh. or organisations? I mean, I'll ask the same to Dorcas, but you you know you clearly have, have seen. I mean, there's some more. amazing organisations. I mean, Ali Hannan Creative Equals. I mean, I know that Nigel Vaz is just about to institute Ali's um, equality standard across the agencies. At um, the IPA, where yeah, he's sorry, the IPA, yeah. yeah. yeah sure. um, and also he's now made it, in 2021, it's going to be compulsory to publish your BAME and gender statistics, which I think will be um, a really good point, because um, if you kind of bring things out into the open... There's only so long where people can pro- procrastinate. Obviously, everybody that kind of has, has backed a change maker or change making organisation is good. I think that's I think that some there's been some really good creative work as well. We myself and Dorcas were speaking earlier about the whole Maltesers campaign around disability, which is an example of um, when you've actually really understood and talked to a particular group of people and included them. You're selling stuff, but you're also doing it authentically. Yeah, using people's lived experiences. And who did you um, experience in your course or after, or if you've got a view on that, who's particularly doing well that you would uh, give a shout out to? Um, if I had to give a shout out, I'm a, I'm a big fan of Nike as a brand because um, I feel like a lot of the time, especially culturally, they hit the nail on the head. And uh, an advert that kept coming up over the duration of the course was the Nothing Beats a London ad. Um, it got pulled for like copyright reasons, but 
in terms of the days, the number of days it was out, it had a huge impact, especially on London, is because it just you can tell they did the research. It it nailed London culture. So many people could relate to like it was about a three minute long advert. Yeah. There's at least one bit you could personally relate to. The amount of people that I know, if I bring up that advert, they go, "Oh, I know someone that was in that advert." Right. It it's that close to home, and they clearly did the research on what's important to Londoners. Um, and just in general, even the stances that they take. The, with the Colin Kaepernick mm. supporting Serena Casta Semenya, um, they're not afraid. To, they don't pussyfoot around it or stay away from the difficult issues. They make the moral stand so you know as a brand what they stand for. And that makes you want to support yeah. someone because you feel they're for you. You mentioned that campaign, um, the Londoner campaign. Mm-hmm. I, I understand you'd, you'd be interested in a career in strategy and advertising. Mm-hmm. So is that the sort of thing that appeals to you, is sort of understanding how to connect with, with, with an audience for a brand and, and bringing a extra level of sort of insight yeah no 100% um because there are when when like I said when you come from certain minority groups you notice which brands include you and which don't you know you notice where you see yourself and that inevitably then makes you more attracted to those brands to spending spending your money there and I'm very passionate especially about um representation in gen in general but I want to be able to when I get to a point of success, to be able to bring people that look like me and in a in an easier path, and like not necessarily like go through any of the layers of struggles that I had to like those doors should already be kind of open by then, and they kind of promote that same thing. There's um there's a lady that I follow on Instagram, um Tanya Compass, who does great work with young people and with LGBT communities specifically, and. Nike partnered with her with one of those campaigns and they got 14, 14 year olds to spend the day doing um, like self um, empowering talks, um, like female um, female empowerment talks. And then they did exercise as well, as well as they just kind of had like a fun day. But Nike sponsors a big, big brand. They really didn't have to, but they sponsor stuff like that. And that makes these little brown girls, little queer girls feel seen and special. And you they just aspire higher for themselves in life, you know? Yeah, I... I, I... Do you see that as a, as a specific role that needs to be carved out in the industry or is are we tone deaf to that kind of role at the moment and you know somebody like yourself could make progress in bringing that to the industry? Yeah, because those are the those are the type of people that are going to come with perspectives that you might not necessarily have, you know, we're not going to as an individual Ali, myself, you, we don't have all the perspectives in the world. So we need to be able to empower the people that do have the ones that are outside of our own lived experiences. So when you empower people like that, even if you take it away from a moral point of view, from a business point of view, it's it's an amazing strategy because you're going to bring in some really raw and possibly unseen talent and you'll be a game changer instantly. So, yeah, companies that do encourage stuff like that, you're you're winning <laughs> for me. And you mentioned um, you can sort of tell brands that are reaching out to you mm. as a young black person. Yeah. Um, what is the signal there? Because, I mean, I noticed that, for example, at the, you know, the Christmas time when the TV commercials come out and there was a bit of comment a year or two ago, several of them featured black or mixed race families. Yeah. Is that what you're looking for? Is it something? Is there something different going on or is that just the, the white side of the industry just taking what they think is the solution and somebody like yourself could provide more insight on that? I mean, um, if you can, like, you can tell the difference between the people who have kind of done their work or not, if there's a kind of stereotypical representation or if there's a kind of representation for example if there's like a an african family on tv and they have like a 
very stereotypical things that you would know from an African cultural point of view. And it's just kind of, oh, wow, we've been normalised and we're not a token or just some sprinkle of exotic ethnicity or anything like that. And it's just, it's it's that main thing, just being normalised on TV, on posters, just in day-to-day shops. Like I was in Boots um, and I happened to see this in passing. So they had the hair care section and then it paused and then it said ethnic hair care. And I was like, why wasn't it just part of the hair care section? Do you know what I mean? It's that when you you feel like you've stopped being othered and you're just a regular member of society and you, even though it's little, it's it makes a, l- a lot of difference. But I have to press you a bit on that because mm. earlier on you were talking about creating the safe spaces mm-hmm. for young black girls to talk with a black leader in the industry. Yeah. So isn't that just, isn't that Boots sort of equivalent of that, that they are reaching out to a minority group rather than putting it all in, in, in one collection to start with and I, I get what you mean but I would say no because like I said the the purpose of these safe spaces is to eventually regain balance you know they're 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 a means to an end and essentially when we reach that point of being normalized and integrated completely there will be a lesser need for those spaces mm. entirely because what imbalance are you fighting to begin with? There's no inequality. Yeah. I, don't, I don't know Boots' motive, but I, I can mm. imagine them possibly yeah. somebody in their merchandising or buying channel. Oh, Boots isn't wants the only to, place. <laughs> wants to improve the the um, racial diversity of their products, mm. and maybe they're maybe they're starting with with that before yeah. integrating completely. I mean, no, I, by all means, have the products. But even Tesco, you have to go to the ethnic section to find right. certain foods from your background, and it's kind of like, why do I have to go to the corner of the store? Why yeah. are you just there that's this that's the point it's just being normalized because i consider myself a normal member of society not an other so why isn't that reflected in the way you're selling your products so yeah that kind of reflects how you feel in your position in society so i get what you mean but until we reach that balance of where we're just yeah, certainly worth a normal that. option like everyone else certainly worth exploring so we've only got a few more minutes left um so ali what next um for the school you mentioned neurodiversity yeah earlier. so we were very lucky to have about 20% of our students from a neurodiverse background this year and last year, which isn't surprising because one in five adults in the UK are neurodiverse. But what I noticed was we taught in a very neurotypical way. So it was quite a noisy room. There was a lot of group work. And if the essence of our school is all about building people to win, we were probably not building those neurodiverse people as quickly as we were building everybody well it's more um more neurotypical so i decided we had to kind of create a tailored course obviously you're welcome still on the course if you're neurodiverse but this would be a second place to thrive where we take into consideration like the advantages of your condition and make sure the environment's the best for you so that is being launched in partnership with creative equals Um, who obviously do a fantastic conference called Diverse Minds every year. We're very much in the kind of um, nascent stages at the moment. We're going to deliver it in 2020. But what we're particularly looking for is alliances with people who are neurodiverse, particularly autistic, because we're looking at maybe just focusing on autism and Asperger's, if that's still a label, because I know I think it's been um, taken back into autism, Um, and people who are their allies as well. Um, Rather than just preparing the young people, this course will be about preparing the employers for placements, probably about a third of the time, and the young people, two-thirds. Right. Yeah. It's very laudable. We finish with a fun question, which is, what's your most <laughs> embarrassing business moment? I'm slightly embarrassed because I haven't prepared you for it. Um, oh. But um, in this journey, Ali, and Dorcas can think of something while you're answering, but in, in the in the journey with yeah. Brits and Finishing School, you must have had a few moments where people have said the wrong thing or... Uh, 
given the wrong signals. Now, I've used, so just to kind of own up, obviously this has been a massive journey for me, the school, Mm. and I've learned so much and I have learned, but it doesn't mean to say I haven't always made mistakes or used the wrong language, and I think it's really important. So in the first year, we did an article um, um, when we were publicising school and we used the word underprivileged. And actually, when we spoke to the students, that was a really offensive word. When I grew up, I was really proud to be what I thought of as for me, I like that label. It's kind of like underdog fighting. Yeah. But they didn't. Okay. And it was kind of me having to say, look, I'm really, really sorry and get that taken off the website and stuff like oh, that. Okay. So I think for me, even though I'm, we're doing this work, it doesn't mean we're always getting it right. But the key thing is to listen to your stakeholders. Dorcas, how about you? If you your career's a little bit shorter so far than mm. Ali, I hope she, she won't mind me saying. But uh, <laughs> have you had any sort of embarrassing moments that have... Uh, been part of the journey to mention um i've i've had embarrassing but embarrassing in the kind of like um traumatic kind of way no no it's okay it's just a there was just a weird moment i've really got caught off guard um by a very very wayward comment at work um i've had some wayward comments but this one's really sad where i was i engaged with members i work in a, in a gym so engage members on a regular basis you know build rapport speak to them about their day obviously the small talk and then a bit about who they are try and get to know people on a deep level so I asked about this person's background which is apparently middle English um, and he gave me a bit of information on his family history he asked me where I'm from I told him I'm from Congo um, I've been uh, yeah and uh, Congo's language is XYZ and then he said oh well your English is very good and I just I was just, I just didn't know where to to even go from here. You were lost for words, English or otherwise. Absolutely lost for words. And I was just kind of, what did you think I was, I was meant to sound like? I just, I don't get it. Um, and it was just one of those moments where I was like, okay, I need to learn how to maybe just every now and again take it with a pinch of salt and maybe kind of joke it out and right. educate if I can. But yeah, that one well, caught me. It certainly shows there's a, still a long way to go. Oh, yeah. um, Dorcas Matombi, Ali Owen, thank you very much for joining us on the Dog and Bone podcast. Thank no, you thank for you. having us. Thanks for joining us on The Dog and Bone. Please subscribe to the podcast and if you have any questions or suggestions, do get in touch via our website, dogandbone.dog or send us an email at woof at dogandbone.dog. Listener.